Can we start? Sure. Well, let me just get comfortable and uh-huh. I'll just save something that I was working on my computer. There we go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Shoot. I have a lot of questions that started with why. Uh, first is why so many prosthetic legs in your movies? Is it a theme uh, special for you? Well, I've always uh, loved the old Lon Chaney movies and he seems only now to be enjoying some sort of renaissance, but I was I really felt they needed to be uh, appreciated in some of their devices and I love his his uh, allegories of disability they seem to be in which a character sure is missing a limb but he also seems to be missing something on the inside as well and they're very cruel exhilaratingly cruel fairy tales for me much like the brothers Grimm or the best Hans Christian Andersen and you know I'm kind of a primitive filmmaker and I felt that I was always doing myself a favor if I could um, deal in broad strokes and so removing a limb whether it's uh, you know or removing sight from somebody or a memory uh, making them an amnesiac things like that are nice broad strokes that seem to be fertile ground for fairy tale resonances so I quite often just arbitrarily remove something and see what it does for the story for me And it's something that's just a little visually more interesting for me to film as well. It's more fun to make the actors uncomfortable as well, to cram their legs up under their skirts or pants. How did you shoot uh, Isabella Rossellini with this beer legs? Was it some special effects? I'm happy to say there were no special effects used, no mm-hmm. modern ones. Mm-hmm. It was all just slate of hand, old-fashioned stage magic that uh you know it's just a matter of hiding her legs one place and mm-hmm. and distracting the eye away from them and and showing beer legs instead so initially we thought of using digital effects but i'm really glad to have been able to use sort of an orson wells trick instead you know it felt more honest for the picture and you're not only cutting legs from your actors you give them some, some artificial ones is it yeah. uh, symbolic too In, in high school, when I studied English literature, I hated trying to figure out the symbols of things. So I promised myself when I started making movies, I wouldn't ever make anything symbolic of anything. But I did start noticing, I don't know if I've broken the promise to myself, that I've started putting in things that feel uh, like emotional substitutes or honest substitutes for things in my real life. I, th- I thought that in my movie Archangel, I have a guy with a false leg, but he's got a form of forgetfulness, a kind of amnesia. And I thought it would be nice that he forgot that he was missing a leg every now and then, or, or that the leg would be a reminder of something bad that had happened to him. It's kind of a constant reminder. If you, every time you look down, you're missing something. It's, it's going to remind you of something. So the, the missing leg is a reminder of some romantic trauma, and uh for Isabella Rossellini and also for the, the character in Archangel but so it constantly reminds her of how she no longer has the man she loves so she's not just missing a leg she's missing something in her heart but the the substitute is rather bizarre you're right a, a beer filled glass legs or in the case of Archangel I it didn't show up on film very much but I really decorated the leg rather sort of uh, fetishistically full of valor and badges and silver war medals and things like that just to kind of uh, give the kind of, kind of false it was a borrowed leg after all just to give him kind of a f- false 
somewhere because he has no memory of what he's done anyway. So I, I don't even really know. A lot of times I just want something to look nice. For the Since we're dealing with visuals here, I just want something to look good. I thought the idea of making glass legs was attractive to me because you often hear about statues having feet of clay, you know, and you really need to have strong legs to stand on. And it just reminded me of a kind of a capitalist vanity that that someone would build their uh, all their uh, pride on on these legs that look great but are too strong to support to support you and, and would eventually have to f- crumble and take you and everything you stand for down with it. Uh-huh. Another thing that is uh, quite often uh, I can see in your movies is uh, dealing with some, uh, as it seems to me, Canada inferiority complex. It's in Arcangel. Yeah. So could you comment on this somehow? Well, Canadians just, they just have this complex. It's half the time they're bragging about how we're better than America, but you can tell that that bragging just comes from this inferiority complex. You can see it in our Olympic athletes. You can see it in... In almost everything we do and say, it's just a symptom of of existing right next to the great superpower, America. You know, you just you're just like the little brother that isn't quite as athletic or wealthy or charming or charismatic, and so it kind of just infects everything we say or do. And so I've just decided to acknowledge it straight on. Most other filmmakers in Canada try to pretend it's not there and it makes it even more obvious and more pathetic so you know we try to make heist pictures as good as american heist pictures and they just end up being bad and we try to make action movies and they're bad you know and, and so i just thought i'd make a movie of almost every movie it's more or less about about that inferiority complex and just sort of embrace it and make it a strength I think I even saw the maple leaf on the belly of this guy Madden girlfriend in the Ben Dionys movie. Oh, yeah, there's a maple leaf on the, uh, I think there's a blood, uh, and it was supposed to, a lot of times I make things and then they don't turn out the way I wanted them to be. While this girl was having an abortion, I wanted there to be a blood stain on the, on the gurney on the table, on the operating table that was shaped like a maple leaf. So it's another sign of humiliation of Canada, or...? Yeah, well, I just I just thought it'd be kind of fun. I you know what, I wasn't even too sure what that was. I, I just thought that, you know, just to remind people you're watching a Canadian movie, I would thought if the if, if some blood leaked out of a out of an abortion uh, patient, that uh, it should be shaped like a maple leaf. Uh, and uh, what about the theme of beer in uh, the last movie? Is beer is some Canadian proud, or what is it? Like, well, is it special for Canada? Yeah, Canadians do beer well. They, they like their beer, they're pretty proud of it, and it seems, at least in the opinion of some people internationally, that Canadian beer is okay, you know. Obviously, uh, Prague beer is uh, fantastic, the Pilsters and, and things, but and we actually do one other thing really well. We make really good beer commercials on television. <laughs> So we're really proud of that. But I, I just thought that beer is the one thing we had that Americans didn't have during the time of Prohibition in the 1930s. And it was sort of really our golden age because since then there hasn't been anything we have that, that America doesn't have, you know. So uh, it was, it was Our kinda, cinema? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a few things, but that was that's a real big thing, you know. 
everybody cared about beer. Only a few people care about art cinema. <laughs> That's true. What about actors in your movie? Do you have some special team, like uh, team of actors that uh, are always in your movies? Or do you want to have some actor in your movies that you didn't have yet? Yeah, there's a few actors I wouldn't mind working with, but uh, I'm quite pleased with the, the people I've been able to find just in Winnipeg, remote, very isolated, Siberian Winnipeg. But there are a few. Isabella Rossellini was the first sort of famous person I wanted to work with because I was always scared that by bringing a famous person into my movies that it might, now I might be, sound conceited talking this way, but that it might destroy the whatever magic I'd managed to produce by way of making a universe for myself. And that all of a sudden into these old period movies would come a conspicuously modern face and spoil it all. But Isabella's face seems to straddle a number of decades. You know, at times she seems to exist in the 1940s or even late 1930s, just because she looks so much and sounds so much like her mother, Ingrid Bergman. And so through the camera, I really felt I was not only looking at someone from the 1940s, but actually felt like Hitchcock's cameraman or something <laughs> notorious, you know, or something. It was kind of... It was kind of fun and delirious, and Maria de Medeiros is the same thing. She seems to have been produced by a time machine with the dial set in the 1920s, you know, and her her portrayal of Aeneas Nien in uh, Henry and June was amazing, and uh, sort of period-perfect facial beauty of the times. There are a few other people, and, you know, it's funny, they don't come to mind right now. I should take this opportunity to put out a lifeline to them and <laughs> hopefully haul them in, but uh, I can't think of them right now. I wanted to ask you also, how could you find uh, such a silent movie actors? Because usually, in my opinion, actors that uh, play in movies now, they wouldn't f easily fit to silent movies. They just no. cannot, cannot play with a uh, face only. Yeah, I agree. But well, your cast looks like they uh, were born for silent movies. Right. Well, I, I cast for appearance, usually. And then, quite often, I uh, get the... Excuse me. <coughs> God bless you. Thank you. I have a bit of a cold. I'm sorry. I cast for looks first, so they sort of have to remind me of the past. I guess my most complete silent movies, like um, Dracula and Cowards Bend the Knee, I actually get them... I just show them what to do. And I've seen so many silent movies that I just, I guess I'm a pretty good mime. And I just act like a silent movie actor and then they just imitate me and they, they sort of get into the spirit of it. Uh, in the case of the ballet dancers in Dracula, they have been doing silent movie acting since they were children without realizing it because the mime that they're trained to do is, is basically silent movie acting and they're very good at it. And, you know, they act with their fingers, their feet, the way silent movie actors did, their whole bodies, you know, whereas contemporary actors mostly act with their faces and their voices. I wanted to ask, where did you find this big Ukrainian guy for Heart of the World? Oh, uh, Greg Klimke, or, uh, mm -hmm. or he, he, he's given it credit in his Ukrainian name. Mm -hmm. He was my producer on my first two feature films, Tales from the Ghibli Hospital and uh -huh. Archangel. And, uh, He and I had sort of had a falling out and hadn't seen each other in a long time, but I really wanted to be his friend again, and I, I realized that after watching a few Eisenstein pictures like Strike and things where they had big, fat plutocrats, you know, factory owners and millionaires, that Greg was the guy to, 
to play this. And uh, I knew he would, he's quite a good stage actor and he's got a very expressive face. And so I just phoned him up. And, and so it was great. He gave me a great performance and we also got to repair our friendship, you know. So it, was, it worked out really nicely. About things that Canada can be proud of, uh, ice hockey, that is... Yes. A lot of ice hockey in uh, the Coward's Banyanese. And yeah. on the sweeters of the second team, there is a big uh, David star. So what it should symbolize uh, like an American uh, Jewish capital behind the uh, American teams? I thought in that one, there was just the Winnipeg Maroons are playing some Jewish team. I just thought it was a good chance to show the captain of the team, Shaky, just sort of clench his fists. I tried to show hands as mm -hmm. much as faces in that movie, and I just thought I'd show him clenching his fist and beating up a Jew, just to show him just being kind of a brute and willing to escalate fights. So it was just an opponent that you could propagandize against, the way Jewry has been for thousands of years, you know, and uh, just the other they're the other you know uh -huh. they're the other team so they're just you don't like the other team and and so they're just different and i just thought why not just slap a star david on there yeah but there uh, is something malicious about them they at least they beat uh, guy madden character on head twice yeah it's hockey for you you know <laughs> and then later the um when the soviets come it's mm -hmm. something from my autobiography the movie is very autobiographical winnipeg here used to be the center of a lot of international hockey tournaments in the 1960s when I was growing up and the and the Soviet national team came all the time and I got to be a stick boy for them and so yeah it was fantastic to uh you know to cut up oranges and feed Alexander Regulin or uh, Anatoly Fiersov or you know it was it was unbelievable to uh spend time with these Soviet stars and I felt so lucky because in a way I was the only kid in in Canada or even the western world you know to to get this kind of up close look at these superhumans you know and <laughs> and it wasn't until the early 1970s that the rest of North America appreciated how great those athletes were you know so so it I, was it was even before 1972 or it was just the year 1972 was the first NHL Soviet tournament uh -huh. the, that that eight game series but up until 1970 The Soviet national team used to come to Winnipeg all the time because the Canadian national hockey team, which was an amateur team, to keep, you know, there was an Olympic team, so they had to stay amateur. They used they were based in Winnipeg, and, uh, and they used to play, they used to come here at least twice a year and play uh, big tournaments. And the Czech national team and the Swedes and the Finns would play as well. It was, it was amazing. And uh, what were your impression of this uh, Russian stars? They almost seemed robotic to me, you know. I was quite young, and, uh -huh. and there was so much mystery about them because they played, well, they were so much better trained. It was amazing that, they, you know, coaching in North America for hockey was so bad that uh, when uh, Coach Tarasov of, uh, of the Soviets actually had his players doing dry land training, you know, like do it, working out in a gym or, or playing uh, football to, to mm -hmm. practice their passing and things like that. Everyone thought that he was crazy, you know, but his athletes were so gifted that clearly he he had uh, a lot of methods. And he actually had systems and that he worked out on the chalkboard. And our, our coaches, because I, I spent a lot of time in the Canadian dressing room as well, our coaches just 
used to just get mad and yell at the players, and that was it for coaching, you know. So there was almost a Kabbalistic mystery about the Soviets. It almost seemed as if Rasputin were were coaching the team or something <laughs> like that, you know, and uh, using hypnosis, and that the players weren't allowed to show emotion, except occasionally maybe kiss each other, which after a goal, which seemed very strange and un-North American, you know. So they were really other, you know. They were really the other, that's for sure. And not only that, they were a hundred times better than us, and so they were just the all-powerful. If I was making Dracula as a hockey movie, you know, Dracula would have to be a Soviet, you know, because he's all-powerful and threatening and charismatic and great and unstoppable. Didn't you think of uh, making a movie with, like, Rasputin and, uh, like, or some other person uh, really using hypnosis to yeah. coach hockeyist? I like hypnosis a lot. I've even hypnot- I have a doctor friend that can hypnotize people, and I've even hypnotized some of my actors in some of my movies. Wow, so, so they, they, they were under hypnosis in some of your movies or just yeah, out of stage? In in Archangel, and some of the actors have no memories of some of the scenes. It's kind of <laughs> really? really funny. Wow, that's great. Why Archangel, by the way? Well, I talked to some uh, to a couple of American writers, and uh, they were interested in this Arch- Archangel theme too in uh, American occupation of the city or not American Elliot occupation of yeah. the city. So why why it's so interesting theme for people of English speaking world? Yeah, I don't know how many people are that interested. I had a, my muse, a friend of mine named John Harvey, got mm-hmm. me interested in it. He's more of a history buff than I am, but. He told me of this situation in Archangel where, well, I guess I'm not saying it correctly. It's How would you say it? Uh, Archangelsk. Yeah, Archangelsk. Anyway, I'll, I'll just keep calling it Archangel because yeah, my sure accent's terrible. Sure. But uh, there was still some fighting after the revolution and after the Great War ended because, and he described it as, as being as if people forgot the war was over, you know, and it's not really quite true. Uh, that's why they were there, but that a lot of the soldiers that they could, that the Allies came, that the Allies sent were, were the only ones willing to go at this point. And worn out by four long years of war, they were only sending uh, wounded people, elderly people, sick people, forgetful people. And it just seemed like a good dreamscape setting for an, an amnesia story uh, where, according to the Matthew Arnold poem, you know, if love is a battlefield where, you know, ignorant armies clash by night, you know, I just thought it'd be great to make a great war movie, which is really a love story in which people are fighting after the war is over, you know, they're still fighting. And so it was just a great, great chance to put a bunch of confused, shell-shocked, lovelorn people and have them fight long after the battle was already lost, you know. Uh-huh. I thought it, I thought it was kind of a good place for that. Yeah, but uh, at the end of movies, there are suppressions, the battle is a battle like a uh, counterpart the personal battle was lost but the like nation battle was won yeah this covert band how much is it uh, autobiographical it can, um, cannot be cannot be all autobiographical i'm sure but uh, how much of the characters and stories did you play hockey or yeah well it's spiritually completely autobiographical i would just say to make my emotional autobiography readable to the viewer i had to just exaggerate and rearrange a few details but it's all there it's a completely honest spiritual autobiography of me and uh i uh, a lot of the superficial details are exactly accurate and some of them are just slightly reassigned from one person to another 
but uh, I grew up in a beauty salon. I played hockey. I hung out with hockey uh, players a lot. Uh, my relationships with women have been very similar to that in the movie. My girlfriend, who was going to have an abortion, changed her mind and had my daughter instead, and she's now 26 years old, and I love her more than anything in the world. So in a way, my daughter's in the movie by her absence, you know, by... So a lot of times there's little things that are just switched around. I like to think of it as my emotional life reflected in a mirror, which has then been shattered and uh, rearranged a little bit. And so all the pieces of me are there, but just slightly rearranged. But it seems more um, presentable and more accessible to the viewer as a result. I've re- rearranged it into something that's watchable in one hour. And uh, this father figure uh, that's uh, in all your movies, I believe, uh, there is yeah. a conflict between son and the father. Is it uh, autobiographical too, or it's uh, some kind of symbol of...? Well, I have to finally admit to myself about 26 years or so after it happened that when my father died, it really, I guess it just sort of haunted me. Uh, I don't know, every, it, everyone's, it, everyone's it, father dies eventually, but for some reason he died so quickly and I didn't even have a chance to be sad and I think I got sad instead of being sad all at once the way a lot of people are I I decided to get sad in very small payments and so I would just dream about him once or five times a week and those are the dreams where I felt really happy to see him and then he'd always go away in the dreams and that always made me sad and that was sort of my little payment my weekly payment of sadness And I sort of spread them out over about 20 years. I now don't dream about him so much anymore, but he really did sort of haunt my way of reading books, of reading movies, the missing father. Father-son relationships were always something I noticed, probably more than other people, because of these long, uh, recurring dreams, which were kind of pleasant, because I got to see my dad, and I even felt I got to know him a bit better over the years, in spite of the fact that I, you know, in fact, had never never once even really seen him during all that time. Well, and the theme of uh, incest, that's uh, why it's so interesting for you, because, uh, like, I don't know, in uh, Careful, it uh, goes to some Shakespearean scale. It's like every uh, character has some relationship with his relatives and they're killing each other and on yeah. the two left, it's it's like, uh, I don't know, Macbeth or something. Right. Well, when I made Careful in 1992, There had been a whole bunch of movies about incest and child abuse, and they were taking a very painful and sensitive issue, and by oversaturating the market with it, they were turning it into something banal. They were turning it into a product, and child abuse was becoming kind of a product. So I thought my screenwriting collaborator, George Tolles, and I thought it might be fun to make a pro-incest movie just to sort of slap this the producers of this product in the face, you know, and just sort of say, well, hey, maybe maybe we should be, you know, maybe it's not so bad or something. We didn't really mean it, but it was just sort of our way of being irritating, the way Luis Budwell cut open an eyeball to be irritating, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've always sort of thought that if we had an irritant, like a grain of sand shoved into an oyster that irritates the oyster until it finally produces a pearl, that maybe if we had an irritant built right into our script like that, that maybe we could produce a pearl ourselves, you know. So a lot of times we're just playing with taboos. But after a while, then we started to recognize that we've even 
you know, that they're taboos for a reason, that, that everybody sort of flirts with those taboos, and the taboos usually work. They think about incest for a few seconds until they're disgusted and turned off, but I just thought it, it's always good to explore our taboos, just to sort of see what kind of feelings turn up and that maybe helps define us a little better. If we deal with the taboos with valor or for, with nobility or with cowardice or something, it, you know, it's... There's always a way. There's always moments where the taboos aren't working. So I just thought it, was, it would be fun to uh, explore. Uh, do you think uh, there are some real taboos now? Because sometimes I can feel that there are no real taboos left. <laughs> yeah, I, I think incest is still a pretty good one. <laughs> I have a daughter and a mother, and you know I find them both very attractive, but <laughs> the taboo is is working beautifully. I have no interest in, in pursuing them romantically, you know. Now, I mean, there are taboos that you cannot make, but I think there are uh, almost no taboos of which you couldn't speak. Oh, right. No, you may be right. You may be right. Maybe in Islam, you know, they're a little more, mm-hmm. you know, a little more strict about enforcing the taboos, but I guess it's just typical Western culture. No, I, it's it's nice to say that we could we could speak about whatever we want. There is a short poem of uh, one hooligan Russian poet that says that. Well, I will give you not not like a poem, but just like a, well translations that yeah. I, it says that I made a, a poem about uh, guts exploding. I made it expecting a cultural shock, but. Uh, This poem didn't cause any shock because everybody now is, uh, now is too broad-minded. Yeah. So, well, it's kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's pretty hard to shock anybody now, that's for sure. About, uh, you said that uh, Covert Band Unis is uh, spiritual after biographical, but the yeah. guy made a character in the end of the movie, he just gives up. He goes to this walks yeah. home fame and uh, <laughs> sits there. So, did you feel at this time that uh, you have uh, nowhere to go or something? Well, it's, I'm not feeling too bad now. Professionally, you know, I have some lots of movies to make, I hope. But uh, in relationships, I've had, uh, I just, I never handle them properly. And invariably, I end up just giving up. I fight my unhappiness for a while. And finally, I just give my hands over to another woman's hands or... I finally just sort of give up. It's funny. I, I've got to, I've got to break this pattern because it makes you old in a hurry. Uh, just giving up, but you, you know, a lot of times you have to fight your way through relationships to make them good. I guess I always thought, idealist that I was, that you could just love your way through relationships. But evidently, you have to fight. I don't have much fight in me. I'm a, I'm a chicken. I'm too cowardly, so I invariably just give up and let everyone else win. And it's made me very, very miserable. So it was just my way of putting that down on film and wondering if anyone out there felt the same way. Some people say that uh, unhappiness helps to be creative. Do you think it's true? It might, I don't know. I think it helps you get in touch with uh, all the unpleasant aspects of your character. And, and uh, you already sort of know all the good aspects of human nature from all the propaganda we're we're showing in bad art but it's the really the really interesting infinite forms of bad character that can sprout up when you're miserable cowardice greed 
infidelity, all those things. And those are the, the things that make for some really good art or for at least sensational melodrama. So maybe maybe that kind of sadness does really help. I'm not sure. But I've heard of many artists that are only good when they're sad. I've heard that said of David Lynch, actually, that he's only good when he's upset. Mm-hmm. Your movies looks like you, you are starting uh, at the point where Russian and German movie directors like Eisenstein uh, more now stopped. It's yeah. like there was no cinema between uh, Eisenstein and you. So yeah. uh, wh- why is this? It's, it's sort of taken me a few years to get to that point, but uh, I I just love that era. And, uh, you know, I don't like everything about the era. I don't like the fact that there wasn't a cure for syphilis and that, you know, that women could vote in our country and things like that, you know. But I, I love the, the fact that movies are put together differently then and that the world looked different then and, and that there's so much decay on the films, even in restored prints, that people seem to act differently then. There's just the same mystery in those movies as there is in the family photo albums that I used to look through as a child that seemed to indicate that all the great things that happened happened before I was born. And I don't really get any tingles in, in, on my skin until I'm filming things that start looking that way. And I'm, I'm slowly getting a little better at, at recreating the language, the vocabulary that some of these people used. Not in its entirety, because I can't really make films as, as well as Eisenstein but, uh, or Murnau, but, but I, can at least, I can at least sort of hang out with them and use some of their phrasing and, uh, you know, just sort of maybe borrow some of their cologne and hopefully smell like them a little bit when I'm presenting their movies, my movies. Uh-huh. Do you like some more modern cinema or you think that it's uh, at all completely wrong? No, I, I, I like some of it. Uh, maybe not love it, but I, uh, there's some movies that I really liked recently. I liked The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, I saw it just a week ago. It's a very good one. Yeah, it's very, very clever. It's very smart. And uh, Punch Drunk Love I liked quite a bit. Great uh, movie, too. And then... Oh, there's a number of a number of pictures that I like. I also have a weak spot for a lot of sort of teen comedies for some reason. You know, uh, Rod Burgundy, Anchorman, and old school. I, you know, I like Will Ferrell movies and things like that. But I could never make movies like that. So I watch them differently. I I don't watch them f- uh, the way a filmmaker watches a movie. I just I'm just a film fan when I watch those movies. You know. Do you think that uh, this Eisenstein or more now a Russian or German line could uh, become a mainstream instead of Hollywood? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, not not Russian by nationality, but the way of making films. Yeah. Well, I'd like to think that uh, I doubt it, probably, but it would be nice because uh, right now uh, there just seems to be sort of one movie language, one editing language, one you know, one way of doing sound mixes and everything. It's it's just like one big McDonald's or something like that. It would just be what's so refreshing about watching. Uh, Eisenstein or Bernau or Abel Gantz or something like that is that you you go, holy smokes, there's a complete different film language possible. And it's great and it's exhilarating. And, you know, it, was just, it would just be like switching from McDonald's to to a completely different cuisine, you know. It's it's just, and you could still have McDonald's and you could still have this other uh, wonderful source of, of eating. And uh, so it would be nice if, 
if the mainstream acted that way, but the ma- mainstream tends to be rather single-tasted, you know, so yeah, that's true. it's probably not going to happen, but it would, it would be really exciting. It would sure open up a period of creativity, that's for sure, in film. When do you think, uh, is there some moment uh, at which uh, it all ended, all these multi-languages of cinema, this French, German, Russian, American, was there some special uh, moment when it all collapsed? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, I guess I don't know my film history well enough to know if there was. Probably happened, like a lot of declines, it probably happened in a, a few stages. I'm not writing off film yet. You know, I think I think it could be revived. It, a lot of times, some of the most exciting film work I see is in television commercials <laughs> uh, or the occasional rock video that's really good. Not very many are, but there's still hope. And I watch a lot of experimental film, and every now and then I see stuff. I really like Matthias Muller and Martin Arnold and this guy Louis Klar is pretty good. And So I think... A lot of that stuff will end up getting incorporated into the mainstream and maybe it'll slowly evolve into something. But well, it will slowly evolve in some other mainstream. It's uh, yeah, it would no, be nice. no, no alternative. Yeah, I don't know yet. I just don't know. I'm just hanging on for the ride. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite music video? My favorite music video? Jeez. That's a good question. Well, uh, two or three favorite music videos. Yeah. I like this thing by Outkast uh, called Bob's Over Baghdad. I like that one quite a bit. I like a Kylie Minogue video where, done by the uh, by Gondry, the director of uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's the one where she just keeps duplicating herself until there's uh-huh. five or six of herself walking in a big circle in a, in a city street. And, uh, and I like... Uh, This uh, White Stripes video, where also done by Gondry, I believe, uh, uh, using uh, a lot of uh, stop-action photography. It's called The Hardest Button, and uh, I like that one quite a bit. Do you think that you have uh, some director of the past had uh, some special influence on you? Oh, okay. Well, Murnau for sure. Yeah. Maybe Abel Gantz, because his movies are, except for Napoleon, his movies are so imperfect. And I like to feel that maybe I could be good at times, but I'll never be perfect. And I, I kind of like the fact that he's only really great every now and then, and then most of the time he's kind of struggling. And I sort of identify with that. But at times he's really amazing to me. So maybe Abel Gantz, Jean Vigo, maybe just for the sheer spontaneity seems to well it's strange that i yeah. didn't well maybe it's just my well lack of education i couldn't f- find a lot of signs of uh, french early cinema in your movies a lot of no. german a lot of russian but not so right. many of french no it's it's true but abogans is just uh he's got a lot of bad continuity and he's very melodramatic and he likes his victor hugo very melodramatic He has lots of jump cuts, and he just seems to edit a lot of micro-montage quite a bit. So he's very atypical of French cinema. He's not like any other French director, so so it's not necessarily French. It's really sort of inspired by him. I do like uh, somebody of modern uh, independent American directors like, well, uh, Hal Hartley, for example, or early works of David Lynch or somebody else. 
Yeah, I've, you know, I've never seen a Hal Hartley movie. I, they just don't have them at the local video store. Uh -huh. I keep meaning to check them out. Early, oh, early that's, David uh, Lynch. That's, that's truly a different cinema language. Yeah. I think almost, almost as different as yours. Really? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have to check it out. I like Eraserhead quite a bit. That may not surprise you. Uh, and I like Mulholland Drive, which is a studio picture. But, uh, yeah, I've just mentioned P.T. Anderson. And, uh, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, do you like something of modern American or Asian cinema? Modern Asian? Asian or American cinema. Okay, well, I just remembered, just last week I saw a small American picture called Napoleon Dynamite that I really liked. I thought it was fun. Uh -huh. Asian cinema, I admit, I don't know much about. I've seen a lot of their sort of shock exploitation pictures, and it doesn't do much for me. But, I, I you know, I like uh, Zhang Yimou a lot, and uh, the guy who did In the Mood for Love, you know. Yeah, Karawai. Right, right. You know, that's, that stuff's really beautiful. And uh, Hoshe Singh, and, uh, who did The Blue Kite or whatever, I really like that. And, so. I think there is Russian movies that you could like, maybe, because it's made with very distinct uh, movie language, and it's, oh, yeah. it was made in 30s, like oh, Russian. Really? And uh, the guy even took the uh, famous actors of the spirit in his movie. Famous in 30s or in 40s. They're so quite old. In the, in the Soviet Union? No, no, it was made in Russia in 1998. The, uh, the director, he was a screenplay writer. Uh -huh. And he was quite famous one, uh, but he never was happy how directors uh, make the scripts into right. movies. So he finally decided to make a movie himself. The movie was absolutely great, as I think. What's it uh, called? It's called Outskirts, Ukraina. Is it available in North America, do you think? Uh, well, I think it could be. It could be. I should write that down. What's, how do you spell it? In Russian, it's O-K-R-A-I-N-A. -A, Okraina. Uh-huh. Okay. And the director is uh, Peter Lutzik. Uh, how do you spell the last name? Uh, L-U-T-S-I-K. L-U-D or T? T. T, okay. I will look that up. And the so, guy, uh, the guy died just after this movie, so I think it's the biggest. Uh, oh really? Yeah, the biggest tragedy of uh, modern Russian cinema. He had time just to make one movie, unfortunately. Okay, well, thank you. I'll, I'll track that down for sure. That's a very good one. And the last question I wanted to ask uh, is, why do you live in Winnipeg? Well, it's strange. It's my home. I know every back lane in the place, and uh, I have family here and a lot of my friends, and all the myths of still hanging in the air, all the myths that helped explain life to me when I was a child trying to figure out the world, they're still here, and so I'll turn a corner and suddenly smell something, and it'll remind me of 50 years ago, and, uh, well, I'm only 48 years old, but uh, it'll remind me of my prehistory, even, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's a place that's necessary for me to stay and to create, I think. I might try making something in New York or Toronto, but in the meantime, Winnipeg is, is for me. Well, I think I have a couple more questions now. In New York, wouldn't you be afraid of losing control of creative process? Yeah, it's something you really have to be careful about. Do you have the full control now? I do, but once I lost it on a movie, Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, I made in 1997, my budget went up just a little bit, but... 
I had a new producer, and he and I didn't get along, and he sort of took control of the picture, and I just thought it was ridiculous to be making a movie for a really low budget and not have artistic control, you know, so I just, I don't even want my budgets to get too big. I want to keep the control. I know Louis Bunuel had a great career just by keeping the budgets reasonable, and he had complete artistic control to the Hartless says the same. Yeah. Uh, he says that uh, he doesn't want to make big budget movies. Right. Is it hard to find money for the movies? Like, how, how much uh, does it cost uh, in average? Well, well, the last one, for example. Saddest music in the world cost about, you know, $2.7 million dollars US. Mm-hmm. But Coward's Benzini cost only $10,000, you know. So I could, I could make it really cheaply or cheaply, you know, mm-hmm. but I haven't made them very expensively yet. And uh, is it hard to find uh, money for the movies for you? No, it's not too bad. In Canada, they're very uh, aggressively supportive of the arts. Yeah, it, if I moved to another country, it wouldn't be as easy, you know. So, And in Winnipeg especially, the province we live in, Manitoba, has a very aggressive film office, and they really uh, pursue films and they're very supportive of me so that's another reason I, I, I'm reluctant to move as well uh-huh. and uh, do you have some movies in production now and do you have any plans only pre-production I, I'm making a small movie with Isabella Rossellini to it's only 10 minutes long to commemorate her father's centennial which is in 2006 and I'm making a uh, low budget feature kind of like Coward's Benedy called Keyhole it's just uh, the autobiography of a house So uh, it'll be, uh, I'll shoot that next summer. Uh-huh. Thank you very much. I think that you are a great director and uh, well, oh, you, can, you can be in this uh, same line with the director of the 20s easily. So well, good luck and I hope to see some of new movies okay. from you well, soon. Okay, thanks. And stay in touch if you have any more questions or anything. Feel free to email me. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Take care, bye.